Sadhu. Sadhu. Whatever is impermanent we must let go of. Sooner or later, including those things that we think belong to us, such as the five aggregates, Namarupa. mentality, materiality, or name and form. Vedana, the feelings, whether bad, good, or neutral. Sanya, our notions, assumptions, memories, perceptions. Sankaras, those things that we like to conjure up, that function, that factory of constant thought-making, weaving, building castles in the sky, and vinyana, consciousness or sense awareness, The, the sense of becoming unburdened, let go of can be greatly supported by the understanding of the transitory nature of these things, of life of how our thoughts and concepts, our feelings constantly change. The Buddha and his Arahant disciples encourage us to constantly let go of anything and everything that is impermanent emptying the heart from all the rubbish, all the stuff, including concepts, relationships, which invariably the mind attaches to actual things around us, be it a position, be it a role in life, a status, actual people, in a way to extend the quote-unquote legitimacy of being a self. 
Meanwhile, it's all the whole thing is a ruse. The whole thing is is just delusion. It's like writing in air in the sky with an ink of some sort or drawing or painting on air. Usually we've seen in the suttas. There is the mind that knows what is called the chitta or the heart. Sometimes it's the same thing. And there are things that are to be known. They cannot know. Form cannot know. Vedana cannot know. Feelings cannot know. The different experiences we're having cannot know. These are things to be known. Hence, we practice sati with panya, wisdom, discernment. That's where understanding comes. Now with this, these two, sati and panya, if we maintain these with diligent effort, it's not gonna come around with laziness. None of the arahants became arahants with laziness. Laziness and the Dhamma don't go hand in hand. But with sati, consistent sati, panya, with confidence and faith in the practice, in the teachings, as manifested in one's life, diligent effort, there's no way that the triple gem could ever leave the heart. You always have the Dhamma. You always have the Buddha. You always have the Sangha in your heart. And that's why the Dhamma can only be found in the heart. Awakening can only be found in the heart. True purity can only happen in the heart. Not in some ink and paper, in some printed sutta. But it requires effort requires diligent effort. Until the sati becomes mahasati, which is great mindfulness, until panya becomes mahapanya, great wisdom and discernment. Great because it stays with you 
And as it stays with you, you it, it goes deeper. We see the fine nuances of things that we, we thought we knew, we understood, but now all of a sudden we understand those things still, obviously, but it is multidimensional. There's a depth to it. Suddenly things are seen for the very first time. And that is a distinguishing factor, a characteristics, uh, a characteristic of a noble disciple who has seen correctly with the eye of Dhamma. So long as they practice sati and panya, it's always fresh, always, always, always fresh. Fresh experience, fresh understanding. Jnana dasana, yatabhutam pajanatini, the sutta say. Or jnana dasana, yatabhutam jnana dasana. To see, to understand how things are taking place. Not just in the outside world, but especially in the mind, in the heart. We become mindful of what is taking place. How I'm leaning into a feeling while pulling back from another. How I'm dwelling on a certain feeling, mental feeling, if you will, a perception an experience from the past, a memory, a memory. And how the awareness all of a sudden just checks out and it starts circling, the habitual patterns come in and we're circling the drain, thanks to more and more of these memories coming in and stealing us, stealing us from the living experience that is taking place. But a aware mind, a mindful, conscious, diligently engaged effort to know captures this, sees things for what they are. And then suddenly you start seeing anicca dukkha anatta because of our adherence to our glue-like touch. In fact, it's more than a touch. It's grabbing and holding and pressing it into our chest. A memory. No, I don't want to let go of this, good or bad. And we dwell on it, dwell on it, dwell on it. And that is what we keep in the heart, not the Dhamma. Many times we talk about the Dhamma 
we say we practice the Dhamma, we can even by heart know several suttas or attend Dhamma talks left and right. But it's just a smear, just a, just a layer that gets blown off like dust the moment an intense emotional trigger takes place. And whatever's in the heart, that's what's going to come out. That's why the Arahants have always said, look into the heart for the Dhamma, nowhere else. The kileshas are there. The defilements are there. They're not in someone else. They're never in someone else. Nibbana can only take place in one's own heart. Nowhere else. So I wanted to share those thoughts and words of encouragement with you on uh, this day where we, I believe it's the fourth week of Sutta exploration, if I'm not mistaken. And the Sutta that we'll be delving into is uh, one of my favorites. It's um, Kemaka Sutta with the elder Kemaka. He was a bhikkhu. And it, this sutta comes from the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya or the linked or connected discourses of Lord Buddha uh, that is found in the Pali Nikayas. It's a very uh, voluminous uh, text. Um, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the, the Sangyutta Nikaya that is. And you have different discourses, different suttantas, different uh, discourses listed um, in different bundles and then linked up together. It's, it's uh, somewhat difficult sometimes to, to follow the order, but with practice, one gets uh, the hang of it, as they say. So the bigger collection is called the Salayatana Vagga Sangyutta, a collection on the sixth sense basis um, and then it, there's a subgrouping. There's many subgroupings, by the way, uh, versus, let's say, in the Diganikaya, which is the long discourses. Um, so, because you're dealing with a lot more suttas in the thousands. So, the Anguttara Nikaya, numerical discourses, and the Kuddhakanika, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, they're almost like in a competition, uh, in my head at least, as far as their numbers go. Uh, they're vast numbers, especially as I've been engaged in retranslating many of these suttas. So it comes from a subgrouping of Kanda Sangyutta on the aggregates, and then the sub-sub section would be the Tera Vagga. Teras are the elders, elder bhikkhus. Uh, so the, uh, the section on the elder bhikkhus, Tera Vagga, or the senior bhikkhus. And within um, this group, um, we find um, uh, a sutta uh, dedicated to Ananda, for example, we have for Tissa, we have for Asaji, a different Asaji, not the one that Venerable Sariputta met and, and uh, was able to attain 
Sotapanna, thanks to his teaching, a different asaji. Uh, we also have, for example, Channa, Channa, the one who uh, used to be the charioteer of Prince Siddhartha, um, and how he was uh, uh, finally, after the Buddha's demise and death, he, um, he was shocked as to the instruction given to the Sangha to treat him, uh, to discipline him um, after Lord Buddha's death because he had never listened to any of the advice that was given to him by Lord Buddha while he was alive. So you have uh, similar suttas. These are all the elders and some of the elders that are listed there, of course. And then you have Kemaka, Kemaka, Kemaka Sutta. Kemaka was uh, Bhikkhu. He also was an elder. But the Sutta situates us at a time period when Kemaka, Venerable Kemaka, is living on his own uh, or, or just with a few Bhikkhus. Um, in a place um, that is about one um, yojana um, from Kosambi, where you have another group of bhikkhus, elders, staying, a much bigger group, like over 60. Um, so he's living in the forest, in a place called Jujubi uh, uh, Forest, Jujubi Tree Forest. So he's apparently known by the other bhikkhus that he has been advanced in his practice. And he also gives good Dhamma talks. Um, apparently that's, that's you, you, we can see the context, especially when you look at the commentaries on this sutta. And it happens at a time period when Venerable Kemaka is gravely ill, he's struggling. Uh, with health issues. Now, the elder bhikkhus living in Kosambi, which is about one yojana. A yojana, by the way, it's a it's a it's a length uh, of distance um, that we find in not only in the Buddhist tradition, but we also find it in the uh, Vedic tradition, in the Jain tradition, even. I believe even today, some uh, texts still refer to yojanas. There's different numbers given, but the consensus is around seven miles. One yojana equaling seven miles. Um, the Jains, I believe it's seven and a half. In the Vedic, it's even like 10, 10, 10 miles or something. So, but in the Buddhist tradition, we usually refer to them in, um, in modern age, uh, one yojana being about seven miles. So it was about seven miles from where the other bhikkhus were living, where Venerable Kemaka was situated in, in his kuti, in his hut, in uh, the uh, forest. So let us begin. Kemaka Sutta, at one time, a large number of elder bhikkhus were living in Gohosita's forest monastery in Kosambi. It was during that time that the Venerable Kemaka, while residing in the Jujubi monastery, 
was stricken with a severe illness as he experienced much bodily pain and suffering. Then, when it was evening, those elder bhikkhus, by coming out from their seclusion, addressed the venerable Dasaka. Friend Dasaka, go and approach the venerable Kamaka and inform him. Friend Kamaka, the elder bhikkhus like to inquire about your health as they pass on to you this message. Friend, we hope that you are bearing up. We hope that you are getting better. We hope that your illness is becoming less severe and your bodily pains and feelings of suffering are decreasing and not increasing. That their subsiding is what is evident, not their continued increase. When you hit a certain age, you become extremely cognizant as uh, you know, um, we start losing people, contemporaries of ours, friends, family, relatives. And in this case, the Sangha, the bhikkhus, that's all they have. The Buddha in different places says, we must take care of each other, bhikkhus, because we have left mother and father, friends and relatives. You are each other's mothers and fathers. So that's what we're surrounded by, Kalyanamittas ideally. And so they, they were, uh, it sounds like they were genuinely concerned because they're coming out of their uh, evening, uh, from their seclusion in the evening. So when we hear that usually, uh, in the case of bhikkhus, um, it's the, the fact that they've, obviously in the morning, they've gone to their alms rounds. And then they carry the food back usually to a, a solitary place or to the sala to where in the monastery and they eat it there in, in time, as long as it's not past a certain time. And afterwards, they engage usually with walking meditation and sitting meditation. Um, but rarely have you come across bhikkhus uh, who are really diligent um, in their practice to just go and lie down and sleep and just sleep off the, the food coma, as it were. So anyhow, they had been sitting for hours and they come out from that seclusion and apparently they collectively start talking about Venerable Kamaka and how he's doing. So Dasaka is here uh, being asked, uh, Venerable Dasaka to go and uh, deliver this message. Uh, to Venerable Kamaka. Yes, friends, replied the Venerable Dasaka in agreement as he went to the Venerable Kamaka at the Jujubi Monastery. Um, something to be said about Venerable Dasaka. Um, uh, Venerable Dasaka, before becoming a bhikkhu, he actually, the commentaries say that he was a serf. He was basically like a slave um, uh, in the household of the rich of uh, rich Anatta Pindika, who we owe so many suttas to um, because of also uh, the fact that he um, bought and donated uh, the uh, Anatta Pindika Park Jeta, in Jeta's Grove uh, in Savati, that monastery where the Buddha spent over 20 vasas, reigns, 
20 years plus. So uh, Dasaka, before becoming a bhikkhu, used to be a slave, a servant of um, Anathapindika, the householder. So apparently what had happened was um, because of him, uh, Anathapindika, going back and forth so much to uh, the monastery in Savati, because he liked to spend a lot of time um, at the feet of the great teacher, so Dasaka showed very much of an interest in being there in the monastery, even to the point where he was helping out the bhikkhus uh, with their, you know, maybe even errands, taking care of them, uh, sweeping the, the ground sometimes. So apparently it made an impact on uh, Anathapindika where he uh, just, um, in finding out his interests in becoming um, a, a bhikkhu one day, he just set him free in that sense. He allowed him his freedom. And uh, Dasaka, lo and behold, goes and becomes a bhikkhu uh, in time. And um, so he's traveling at this point. They're no longer in Savati, they're in Kosambi. So he is with these bhikkhus. So that's who uh, Venerable Dasaka uh, briefly uh, stated is. So yes, friends, uh, replied the Venerable Dasaka in agreement as he went to the Venerable Kemaka at the Jujubi Monastery. And having reached his hut, he approached the Venerable Kemaka and relayed the message by saying, friend Kemaka, the elder bhikkhus like to inquire about your health as they pass on to you this message. Friend, we hope that you are bearing up. We hope that you are getting better. We hope that your illness is becoming less severe and your bodily pains and feelings of suffering are decreasing and not increasing. That their subsiding is what is evident, not their continued increase. In reply, the Venerable Kamaka stated, Friends, I am not bearing up well. I am not getting better. My illness is getting severe, and my bodily pains and feelings of suffering are increasing and not decreasing. Pretty self-explanatory, right? And he's just a matter of fact uh, in his, his response. Then having received his reply, the Venerable Dasaka went back to the elder bhikkhus and informed them, friends, the Venerable Kemaka sends you the following response. Friend, I am not bearing up well. I am not getting better. My illness is getting severe and my bodily pains and feelings of suffering are increasing and not decreasing. Then those bhikkhus asked the Venerable Dasaka to go back to the Venerable Kemaka and tell him. The elder monks say this, Friend, the Blessed One has taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions or memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions, and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. Therefore, the elder bhikkhus asked the Venerable Kemaka as to which of these five 
does he reflect and look upon as his self or the parts that make up or belonging to his self? So you see here how, in a way, they're, they're kind of fishing, fishing for Dhamma, for a teaching, because apparently Venerable Kemaka used to come and teach them and then go back to his hut. So yes, they're concerned. I would hope uh, that they're genuinely concerned. <laughs> Uh, the way the sutta unfolds, we see that they've been very genuine uh, in their concern. However, you can see here the conversation is suddenly going from mundane things to the Dhamma. So which part of these five aggregates is Venerable Kamaka talking about when he says, I am not bearing up well. In fact, I'm in pain and suffering. So who's this who's suffering? And we continue. And the Venerable Dasaka, having consented to go back, he set off and reached the Venerable Kamaka's hut as he relayed the message given to him by saying, friend, the Blessed One has taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions, memories. These are the same thing as perceptions. Usually in English uh, translations of this uh, Dhamma, we see perceptions for sanya, but this is sanya. You can alternate it with perception, it doesn't matter. Clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. Therefore, the elder bhikkhus asked the Venerable Kemaka as to which of these five does he reflect and look upon as his self, or the parts that make up or belonging to his self. To this, the Venerable Kemaka replied by saying, Friends, the Blessed One has indeed taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions or memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. However, I do not reflect nor look upon any of these as myself, nor see them as parts or things that make up or belonging to a self in me. Here he is drawing a very clear distinction because the elders, when they heard that he's not doing well, I'm in pain, etc., they immediately concluded, it sounds like, that, oh, then the Venerable Kemaka is just still a putujana in a sense. He's still unable to see the difference between the aggregates. He's not disconnected from this sense of clinging to the five aggregates that make up a person, a self. So he's acknowledging the presence of these aggregates, but he's making a very direct uh, statement here. I do not reflect nor look upon these as myself, nor see them as parts or belonging to a self, which means that Venerable Kemaka is at the very least a Sotapanna because he 
does not have that rigid sense of self, my, I am, this is me, this is who I am. Which in Pali, it's called Sakaya Ditti, the wrong view of the uh, of, of a selfhood, an independent entity made up of these uh, five aggregates. And having received his reply, the Venerable Dasaka went back to the elder bhikkhus carrying the message. Friends, the Venerable Kemaka says, the Blessed One has indeed taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of uh, clinging to the aggregate of form. And, and you're going to notice there's a lot of repeat, many uh, translation versions of it. They skip all these, but I make a point of repeating them because that's how the Buddha passed it on. Um, and so we need to keep that in the way I understand it. Clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions or memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions, and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. However, I do not reflect nor look upon the, any of these as myself, nor see them as parts or making up or belonging to a self in me. Now here, the elder bhikkhus, in hearing this, again asked the Venerable Dasaka to go back and ask the Venerable Kemaka the following give him the following message. Now, it's kind of funny uh, to you know, to consider the distance to be traveled. Each way, it's about seven miles. So Venerable Desaka is going seven miles, hopefully getting some rest. And he's going off of a single meal a day. The poor guy has to go back and forth. And, and uh, the sutta presents it in a way where it's like, all of these pa going back and forth, like a go-between, is done in the same day, <laughs> which um, I have a tough time uh, wrapping my mind around, um, because that's 14 miles each time a question is being asked. <laughs> so, and it's not like paved road or it's, it's you know, it's, we're, it's rough, uh, even in those days. So you're going through the forest, at least a big portion of the trip. So uh, let's bear that in mind. So they asked the Venerable Kemaka, who, um, uh, yes. So friend, the Blessed One has taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions, memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. With your response that you do not reflect nor look upon any of these as yourself, nor see them as parts or making up or belonging to a self in you, then does that mean that the Venerable Kemaka has attained the highest goal of the holy life? Having destroyed all the contaminants by attaining arahanship? This is the, uh, at least in those days, 
the um, $1 billion question, not to trivialize it, but it's like the secret question that would linger in the minds of meditating bhikkhus. Have you done it yet? Is that what this means? Have you reached it? I would see this also on retreats among lay people. And also some monastics have come across where even though people are not supposed to talk whenever they get a chance, like, you know, to sit in the dining hall or something, there's that look with a big question mark. Did you get it? Did you, did you, did you, did you, did you reach it? At least the Sotapanna or the first jhana, whatever it is. <laughs> so that is the sense that we can get from this question. And, and it's a genuine, it's not in any way, you know, um, trivial, of course. But they're curious to know, has he done it? And the Venerable Dasaka eagerly went back to the Venerable Kemaka as he conveyed the Elder Bhikkhu's message by asking, Friend, the Blessed One has taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions or memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions, and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. With your response that you do not reflect nor look upon any of these as yourself, nor see them as parts or making up or belonging to a self in you, then does that mean that the Venerable Kemaka has attained the highest goal of the holy life, having utterly destroyed all the contaminants by attaining arahantship? At this, the Venerable Kemaka replied, the Blessed One has indeed taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions or memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions or sankharas, and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. But I do not reflect nor look upon any of these as myself nor see them as parts or making up or belonging to a self in me. Yet I am not an arahant, one whose contaminants have been utterly destroyed. For when speaking of the five aggregates, I am still not rid of the conceit I am, even though I don't find within me anything or anyone to be called or experienced as an I am. At this level, when a person says this, basically the world keeps knocking on the door, but there's no one to answer. That's one of the signs of a sotapanna. The salayatanang are always bringing in data, but they don't have a footing in a sense. And it's not like it's completely gone. Sometimes I've seen uh, commentators or, or teachers talk about once the person reaches a sotapanna, then completely the self uh, idea, even the usage of the word self, myself, etc., is eradicated. But that is not true. Looking at the suttas, including the Buddha, he uses the word myself often. It is uh, the 
identification with that. It's the crystallization of that sense of selfhood that is destroyed. Even if the person tries so hard to kind of hang a frame on this wall, but there's no nail to hang on. This is me, this is who I am. But for someone who has not yet experienced it, the way it sounds like with at least some of these bhikkhus who are questioning Venerable Kamaka, it can be very confusing to wrap their mind around. So, and the Venerable Dasaka, by having gone back to the elder bhikkhus, reported to them the Venerable Kamaka's response by saying, the Blessed One has indeed taught us about the five aggregates of clinging that are comprised of clinging to the aggregate of form, clinging to the aggregate of feelings, clinging to the aggregate of notions or memories, clinging to the aggregate of mental constructions, and clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or sense awareness. But I do not reflect nor look upon any of these as myself, nor see them as parts or making up or belonging to a self in me. Yet I am not an arahant, one whose contaminants have been utterly destroyed. For when speaking of the five aggregates, I am still not rid of the conceit I am, even though I don't find within me anything or anyone to be called or experienced as an I am. Again, the elder bhikkhus asked the Venerable Dasaka if he could go back to the Jujubi forest. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's a different day <laughs> and not having the poor uh, bhikkhu go back and forth um, uh, 14 miles each, each, with each question, each trip, and carry this message as they further inquired from the Venerable Kamaka. Friend Kamaka, the elder bhikkhus asked, if friend Kamaka is not an arahant, then what can the Venerable Kamaka be referring to when he uses the term I am? A very simple, you know, it's a decent question. <laughs> Is it in reference to form, matter, uh, namarupa basically, or to feelings, or to memories or notions, or to mental constructions, or to vijnana, consciousness or sense awareness? Or is it something completely apart from them, from the five aggregates? What exactly is this I am that the Venerable Kamaka is referring to? This is where it's getting interesting. Having agreed to carry their message back, the Venerable Dasaka agreed, uh, so yeah, to carry the message back, yet again went to the Venerable Kamaka and told him, friend, the elder monks would like to ask you this further question. Friend Kamaka, if friend Kamaka is not an Arahant, then what can the Venerable Kamaka be referring to when he uses the term I am? Is it in reference to form or matter or to feelings or to memories, notions, or to mental constructions, or to consciousness or sense awareness? Or is it something completely apart from them? What exactly is this I am that the Venerable Kamaka is referring to? Now, if you or I, if, you, if we were in Venerable Kamaka's position, we would pretty much do what he's going to do next. He's seeing Venerable Dasaka go back and forth with these questions. He just goes, at that point, the Venerable Kamaka exclaimed to the Venerable Dasaka, 
enough of this going back and forth, friend Dasaka. Please go, get me a walking stick, something I can lean onto, and I will go to the elder bhikkhus and carry my reply to them. So uh, then the Venerable Kemaka, by leaning on a walking st staff, walked all the way to the elder bhikkhus in Kosambi, seven miles, especially for a, an ailing elder person, a bhikkhu. And after exchanging friendly greetings with them, sat to one side. Then the uh, elder bhikkhus turned to the Venerable Kemaka, now seated among them, and said, Friend Kemaka, when you say this term, I am, what exactly do you mean? Is it in regard to the form, to feelings, to notions, memories, to mental constructions, or to consciousness, sense awareness? Or is it something entirely different or separate from these? What is this I am that you still refer to? Friends, this is Venerable Kemaka responding, I do not say that I am this form, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from this, this form. I do not say that I am feelings, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from feelings. I do not say that I am notions or memories, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from notions or memories. I do not say that I am uh, mental constructions, sankharas, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from mental constructions. I do not say that I am consciousness or sense awareness, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from consciousness or sense awareness. In other words, although I use the term I am in reference to the five aggregates that hold things together, that does not mean, however, that I recognize them as I am this, for I am still not rid of the conceit I am. The five aggregates are there, they function. But because of Venerable Kemaka declaring that he's not an arahant, he's also saying something else, that he's not an arahant but he still has the conceit. Conceit happens to be one of the upper five uh, fetters, sangyojanas. So we kind of are seeing that, okay, he might be uh, an anagami, a non-returner. So let's, let's, let's dig in some more. He uses here an analogy. Um, and as Lord Buddha says, um, the terms that the, the phrasing that he uses is um, when he's demonstrating a point uh, that's kind of terse and difficult to grasp at first. He says, for some wise people are able to grasp the meaning through the use of uh, similes, metaphors, analogies. So here is uh, Venerable Kemaka's version. Friends, it is very much like the fragrance of a blue, a white, or a red lotus. If someone were to tell you that the fragrance of a blue, a white, or a red lotus was in its petals, or in its color, or in its stem, would you consider that to be accurate? 
No, friend, that would not be accurate, replied the elder bhikkhus. What then, friends, would be an accurate way to describe as to where the fragrance of the lotus to be emanating from? Friend, it would be accurate to say that the fragrance of the lotus comes from the flower itself, replied the elder bhikkhus. Exactly, friends. In the same manner, I do not say that I am this form, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from this form. I do not say that I am feelings, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from feelings. I do not say that I am notions or memories or perceptions, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from notions or memories. I do not say that I am mental constructions, nor do I say I am entirely separate from mental constructions. I do not say that I am consciousness or sense awareness, nor do I say that I am entirely separate from consciousness or sense awareness. In other words, although I use the term I am in reference to the five aggregates holding things together, that does not mean, however, that I recognize them as I am this, for I am still not rid of the conceit I am. Friends, although a noble disciple may have abandoned the five lower fetters that bind a person to the sensual world, there still remains some residue in the form of the conceit I am the desire that is I am, and the latent tendency of I am that lingers as the result of not having been uprooted yet. Here we have our answer as to where he is at on the path. He declared it in an indirect way, actually in many ways. And he continues, sometime later, however, as the noble disciple continues to observe the arising and vanishing of the five aggregates of clinging, he begins to see more and more clearly, this is the arising of the form or matter, namarupa. This is the vanishing of namarupa. This is the vanishing of form. This is the arising of feelings. This is the vanishing of feelings. This is the arising of notions or memories. This is the vanishing of notions or memories. This is the arising of mental constructions. This is the vanishing of mental constructions. This is the arising of consciousness or sense awareness. This is the vanishing of consciousness or sense awareness. Remember earlier I was mentioning before the sutta how impermanent things must be let go of. The noble disciple is watching, observing carefully with sati, constantly, seeing these five aggregates arise and vanish. And whatever arises and vanishes, we keep our hands off, as it were. And Venerable Kamaka resumes his uh, instruction here. And as he continues, the noble disciple, continues attending to the rise and fall of these five aggregates of clinging thus. Then 
or the conceit I am, or the desire that is I am, and the latent tendency of I am all become uprooted. Friends, it is very much like the stained, dirty piece of cloth that is given to the washer to clean. And the washer would brush it with salt, lime, or cow dung and rinses it thoroughly in pure water. If you've ever been to India or a country like that, in some of the um, villages, and uh, you will see places uh, where they collect cow dung fresh and then they turn it into like a patty and, and, and flatten it and then they dry it. It's used for several things, including um, mosquito repellent for fire um, and also for cleaning uh, clothes. Um, so that's why um, it's here. But, he continues, as the washer returns the cloth to its owner, clean and pure, the cloth would now still have with it the lingering smells of salt, lime, or cow dung, as these would not be removed from it while being washed. But when the owner puts it in a perfumed box, then the smells of salt, lime, or cow dung that were there earlier would now be completely removed. And in India, uh, they would have boxes. It's like almost like you know, in the refrigerator we have to keep food from going bad. And in, in, in India, for example, they would have boxes. It doesn't have to be a big one. And they would have different fragrances there, like incense and things. And uh, sometimes dirty clothes uh, or things that would be, you know, that wouldn't smell right. And you still needed to wear it. And you didn't have time to go ahead and wash it and wait for a few days for it to dry. You would just throw it in there. So you would just gain a few hours uh, of it not smelling at least. Um, so that's the pure perfumed box that is being referred to. You, you see this uh, analogy of a perfumed box in different suttas, by the way, also. So, uh, and, and, and uh, Venerable Kemaka continues. In the same way, friends, Although a noble disciple may have abandoned the five lower fetters that bind a person to the sensual world, there still remains some residue in the form of the conceit I am, the desire that is I am, and the latent tendency of I am that lingers as a result of not having been uprooted yet. Sometime later, however, as the noble disciple continues to observe the arising and vanishing of the five aggregates of clinging, he begins to see more and more clearly, this is the arising of form or matter. This is the vanishing of form or matter. This is the arising of feelings. This is the vanishing of feelings. This is the arising of notions or memories. This is the vanishing of notions or memories. This is the arising of mental constructions. This is the vanishing of mental constructions. This is the arising of consciousness or sense awareness. This is the vanishing of consciousness or sense awareness. And as he continues attending to the rise and fall of these five aggregates of clinging thus, the conceit I am, the desire that is I am, 
and the latent tendency of I am all become uprooted. When this was said, the elder bhikkhus said to the venerable Kamaka, in asking our questions thus, surely we had no intentions of troubling the venerable Kamaka. Our hope was that the venerable Kamaka, in answering these questions, he would teach us, clarify, and elaborate for us, revealing, elucidating, and establishing us in the Dhamma by making us understand and see the dispensation of the Blessed One in detail. Whenever we come across the, the phrase establishing us in the Dhamma, that means establishing one in right view. That is, having crossed, gone beyond the point of no return in the Dhamma. That means, at the very least, becoming a Sotapanna, even a Magga or path level. So that was their hope, to be established in the Dhamma. And truly, they continue, and truly, the Venerable Kemaka has taught us, clarified and elaborated for us, having revealed, elucidated, as well as established us in the Dhamma by making us understand and see the dispensation of the Blessed One in detail. This is how the Venerable Kemaka responded to the Elder Bhikkhu's questions. And the Elder Bhikkhu's were all delighted in the words of the Venerable Kemaka. And while this exposition was taking place, the minds of about 60 elder bhikkhus were utterly liberated from the contaminants, together with the mind of the venerable Kemaka. They became arahants, along with venerable Kemaka. That is the power of the Dhamma. In fact, not just the Dhamma, we have to clarify. Listening to the Dhamma. Listening to the Dhamma. Attaining the first level of nobility, meaning becoming a Sotapanna, has a lot, if not everything, to do with listening with one's heart, with confidence and faith to the Dhamma, to the suttas, to reading the suttas, or listening to the suttas or to a Dhamma talk, which necessitates the person's involvement, diligent effort in sitting, but not sitting with one's own conceptions and perceptions and, and, and interpretations of what this should be meaning, or this does not match with my own understanding of this or that. We leave all that outside and just be present to hear the Dhamma with our hearts. And, and the ones who do sit like that, the ones who, uh, who listen with their hearts without having all these filters, to this day, people attain Sotapanna through listening to the Dhamma 
being talked about, being expressed, being elucidated, explained. So this sutta, Kiyamaka um, Sutta, is, uh, is, uh, is a wonderful sutta. It's uh, the number I, I might have not mentioned it earlier. Um, it's Kemak Sutta, Sutta uh, from the Sangyutta Nikaya, number 22.89. It's in the section of the Theravaggas or the senior bhikkhus of the Sangyutta Nikaya. At this point, I will um, pause and ask for any thoughts, questions, comments. Again, uh, because of the view of here on Zoom, I will not see hands. So please, if you have something to speak about or share, uh, you can just, uh, you know, turn your uh, mic on and jump in. Bhante, uh, thank you for your talk today. Yes. While 60 of the monks became arahants, unfortunately, I, I didn't change today, so. I still have to keep working. Um, the interesting thing that came up for me was the uh, discussed on multiple times when observing the five aggregates of clinging and they're talking about the mental components and the physical component arising and vanishing. And I can see relatively clearly the mental component components arising and vanishing and how because they can happen in a relatively short amount of time but when i'm looking at rupa whilst i can clearly see that rupa is uh, impermanent it pretty much sits there and doesn't change that would be me that would be the bookshelf in front of me the computer all of those things are not changing so can you just clarify for me a little bit when we're observing the aggregates arising and vanishing, what is it I'm looking for for Rupa that might be changing or is there something I'm, I'm just observing that impermanence even though I, I'm actually not observing any change. I'm just not clear on how they can observe Rupa arising and vanishing when I don't. Usually we, when we read the term uh, or come across the term, um, impermanence or anicca um, and the more we hear it the more we read it it becomes almost like a wall in your house that becomes ah, it's there i see it i accept it fine it it loses its significance it loses uh, its depth but with the addition of observation looking carefully 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 we see that it is the unreliability of things that the Buddha is referring to, the inconsistency of things, the instability of things, the non-fixed state of things. Now, it's also interesting how out of the five aggregates, the first two, Namarupa and, and Vedana, usually are harder to detect, especially in this example, in, in your question, the nama rupa part, the, the form, the material form part, which is in the, in the case of the body, things that we can relate to see, touch, etc., versus 
Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. Now in your question, you say, I can see the other, the others. But from the suttas, the teachings, we see how the last ones, the ones you just mentioned that you're able to see are the ones that are so quick in coming and going away, showing up and then vanishing so fast. In fact, a second, a millisecond might be like a very long time to encapsulate them because so many of them are occurring. However, the human mind has more of a relationship, if you will, in seeing these things, like concepts. Well, I've always wondered about that. Like how, how can like I'm, I'm concepts or consciousness, right? Comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. But just picking up on Sanya, we see how much of uh, how much we have dwelled and made up a life based on concepts. So there's more of a relationship with it than with the body, even though we spend so much time taking care of the body. We communicate with each other. You live life with the body in the observable reality that we call the world. But we neglect to consider that the body is the most abundant, the abundantly uh, clear, that is, of all the five khandhas that demonstrates anicca dukkha anatta. Now, dukkha becomes obviously more emphasized because we've been sitting here for some time and the body is aching, parts of the body go numb, it becomes uncomfortable. There you go. The body is speaking to us saying, hey, move me, change me, change my position. So the body has become very much like that. Uh, reload. Okay. Can you see me? Yes. Okay. I don't know. It's just Zoom just quit and then restarted. Apologies for that technical, uh, technical problem. Um, but the body, therefore, is like that thing, that piece of furniture that we know it's there. We'll take care of it. We'll sweep. We'll, we'll wipe the dust off of it. Every once in a while, we can paint it, not to show the erosion, but it is eroding. Everything is changing. Everything is eroding. The Greg that we are communicating with today, we see is different than the Greg that was 10 years old or who lived in Australia or who was doing something else an hour ago or two hours ago. Now, this becomes very conceptual, of course, easily. Uh, coming back to the the immediacy of seeing the arising and vanishing of the body. That, for that, uh, one suggestion would be to take um, an image of a video of still life. You know, you put a camera outside and you're looking, you're, you're taking a picture of a flower 
or not a picture, I'm sorry, a video. You're recording a video of a flower. And it's for all intents and purposes, let's say there's no wind, but and it's not moving for us to capture it. So it's almost like a time lapse of photography. You take that. And then after you, you're watching the video, it's recorded and you're watching it on display. And then you squeeze, instead of it being five or six hours, now you squeeze it into a shorter timeline. Suddenly you're gonna see the flower being jittery, jittery, jittery. Now, in order for us to become more aware of anicca or the arising and vanishing of the body, the sati has to become stronger. It must match, in a sense, that image of squeezing the timeline together. So we're able to not miss out the tiniest changes. Now, obviously, this is one way. Another one would be, like yesterday, I was sitting reading um, some text, and I looked at my, you know, my, my hand, and it was starting to itch. So I wanted to scratch it. It wasn't there a millisecond ago. Now it's there. And I looked and there was no insect, nothing walking on it, but it felt like it was. And I'm observing and I'm observing also the vein, the arteries that were there under the skin. And I noticed how they were pulsating. There's another demonstration of arising and vanishing. Just like feelings come up Oh my God, I'm feeling so great, this and that. And then something else happened. All of a sudden it's gone. But we never, we, we never actually follow the stream and see, okay, what's happening now? Instead, we like to pitch our tent and stay there in that path, now past moment of experiencing that Vedana, that feeling. So now we're in the territory of Sanya. We're no longer with Vedana. We're in Sanya. And we don't stop there either, because that memory turns into multiple associations. Now we are in the territory of sankharas, because now we're constructing things. We're building things. The Buddha had a wonderful term for it. He called it papanchas, mental proliferation. So we have now become divorced, disconnected, cut ourselves loose from reality, from the body, from the uh, from feelings, from even memory, because it's no longer the memory. The memory did its thing, it triggered it. And now we are in the la-la land of mental constructions. But this is happening on an ongoing basis. So therefore, when we look at the importance given to sati and panya, then we start to understand that this has everything to do with awakening, with the experience of awakening. And so much energy, diligent effort is required by sati. So much not to miss out a point. After all, if it, were, if it weren't that important, sati, the Buddha would not put it every, in every almost every formula, whether it's the bojangas, the seven factors of awakening, whether it's the eightfold path, the five spiritual faculties, the five powers, et cetera, et cetera. It's everywhere. So it's like I've used the example in the past of the car 
having those headlights and it's pitch blackness outside, sati is are the you know is those uh, those lights that clarify things for us. So I would use the physical sense some to give you something a little bit more concrete, perhaps a tool to connect you with the bodies arising and fall. Observe so don't we make the mistake of resembling the arising and vanishing speed of it that is with the speed with which uh, sankaras come and go or vinyanas come and go or sanya comes and goes perceptions for the body it's temporally a little bit longer so that's how i would approach it that's why i was referring to that example of a flower being with a videotape and then you you squeeze it so that you can see squeeze it meaning it, it's shortening the time squeezing it together the tiniest nuances now we are able to detect so but the body, for example, again, using the example of sitting long, the muscles that felt so comfortable, the joints that were feeling amazing when you first set, it's not so after a certain time has passed. You know, right now, my right ankle, right foot is completely numb. <laughs> so it's like, but it wasn't like that earlier. So I have to change the position. And then once you change the position, where's that numbness that was apparently so loud, it was inescapable. It was dominating my sphere of awareness, if you will. The sense awareness was that helped me change my position immediately, immediately, immediately. And then you change, boom, all that intensity is gone. Arising, vanishing. That's one way of, of observing the body or nama rupa, nama, or in this case, rupa, the form. Arise and fall. So I agree with your analogy about the time lapse. Obviously, using that in the past, I have been able to think about everything, even mountain ranges, eventually all decay and disappear. And so uh, impermanence is quite clear. But when I use that, when I look at, as you said, feeling and um, sanya perception, all the things in mental components are arising and passing much more quickly relative to Rupa. I feel that, and I may be wrong because I haven't thought it all the way through, is that I can look at um, Sanya and see it separately from feeling, from Vedana. I can, I can observe Vedana separately without having to use memories to do that. But when I use even the time-lapse uh, analogy and I am more aware of the arising and vanishing of Rupa, I can only do that using perception. I have to use memory to and to recall what it used to be like and maybe even project what it might be like. I guess I don't have to project. I can only use memory, but it, there's, I have to use memory a number of, recall a number of instances and observe that change and so I'm wondering whether I should be able to observe that change in Rupa 
separately without using memory, but from what you said, really it's a requirement to use memory to observe. Not necessarily, because uh, using the example of the foot going numb or the body part, you, 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 you change your position. Um, you're feeling it. It's, it doesn't require memory per se. Your body is giving you plenty of input to know that it is in pain. It is in discomfort. Now, mindfulness, we, we need to distinguish between mindfulness and, and memory. My, mindfulness is the thing that is allowing the object to be known. In this case, the object is the aggregate, sanya. Sanya is an object. It is there to be known because it is impermanent. Now, using the body, uh, separate for or from sanya. What we're doing is we're observing the physical sensations of the body as they take place. That's why it is present. It is jnana dasana, seeing things how they come to be in the present moment. There is no involvement with the past in the sense. The body is trying to help us stay or drive us to stay in the past and compare. This is where conceit comes in. Another form of uh, uh, definition of conceit is compare and contrast. So before I was better, now I'm not. When we dwell into that territory, then yes, absolutely. Sanya is being brought in to be added into the equation. Whereas if we just look at the aggregate of form, meaning the physical sensation in this example, the kayanupasana, practicing, just constantly being staying with the body. What happens is once you fix the body, the numbness, if you're staying with the body, with the sensation, there's no need or requirement for us to incorporate sanya into the equation because your body is telling you right now what is taking place. In that sense, with the purity and the development, refinement of sati, you are in fact seeing the arising of, nam, of form and the vanishing of form. Arising of form, vanishing of form. Form in this case, if you notice, I'm using it as physical sensation. Is this uh, working for you? I think one of the challenges I was having was using external objects like the bookshelf or the walls where, where what you were saying with the feeling wouldn't help. So, and I can understand when I'm being mindful, I guess I'm not really being mindful of the bookshelf because I can't feel its sensations and et cetera. Ah, so, ah, yeah. so if I limit my mindfulness to myself, the five ag aggregates, then everything you're saying works. So is am I being incorrect when I think about form, thinking about the walls and the bookshelf? Should I not do that? And the mindfulness part, just keep it to five aggregates. The Buddha says, you can't see the rest of my arms, but everything is in this fathom long body. Mm, okay. Dhamma, the world, he says, loka. The whole entire cosmos, the existence, is all in this in this one fathom long body. The Dhamma is here. Sangsara is here. The Kileshas are here. 
the way to understand and penetrate through and reach Nibbana is here, nowhere else. Because you're risking so much when you're leaning into the world around you. Last, I think it was last week I mentioned about those three bhikkhus who had gone into their rains retreat. Um, and uh, it's a very, very small monastery with three kutis and a small dhamma hall. And they make a vow to one another. They say throughout this rains retreat, which is three months, uh, let us control our mindfulness, not allowing it to be dissipated, if you would, go far. So, and, and they're practicing and they're not bringing this up throughout the three months. So they need to uh, exchange or notes basically uh, once the rains retreat is over. So it's over. So uh, they come and the senior bhikkhu, the abbot calls them over and says, so tell us, he refers to the youngest bhikkhu and says, um, how was your uh, sati maintenance? He says, Bhante, I uh, stayed with my mindfulness and I did not allow it to leave the, the confines, the borders of the monastery. It didn't leave, it didn't go to the village, it didn't go to see um, who's building what, what's happening in the world, um, who's getting married to whom, etc., etc. If there's a war, what's happening in the world, is there COVID, no COVID, all these things, it's the world. This is very good. But his mind was all over the place as far as the monastery went, despite it being small. So he might have been reconstructing his kuti, thinking about, oh, my room is cleaner than the other bhikkhus. How come they don't sweep their floor, their ground like I do? How come their slippers are not next to each other every time they go inside, etc.? All these things. Again, he made the resolution not to leave the monastery grounds. This is fine. And he asked the other bhikkhu and uh, the other one says, Bhante, I made sure my sati did not leave my room. It stayed inside the borders of my room, the walls. It didn't leave. Even when I was outside, it was just in this vicinity. But because he was spending most of in a rains retreat, bhikkhus are highly, strongly advised to practice in isolation and seclusion. Um, so staying within their kuti would be the thing. So he says that's where it was, but you can still do a lot with distraction when you're inside the room, redecorating the room, rearranging the furniture, the stool that you might have, <laughs> the bed, etc. And then they, these two monks turn to the uh, elder monk and they say, Bhante, how about you? How was your sati? And he says, oh, I actually made the resolution and stayed with my body. It didn't, I did not allow it to leave even an inch away from my body to go even that far. Because there's nothing more immediate than your body to demonstrate 
the three characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, because it can easily, easy, depending on the type of dispositions we have, and in this time period, we're very heady. We can conceptualize easy, and we can put Dhamma as a book in a shelf somewhere, including these concepts, and, and we can perpetuate these concepts and add them to our repertoire, but it's completely disconnected from the body and the living experience of the body. That's why the Buddha realized this 26 centuries ago. And every time he used the body, you would see results. When Venerable Anuruddha was asked as to how he attained arahantship, his insistence was he practiced the Satipatthana everywhere, everywhere he went. With what? With the body. In the Anguttara Nikaya, you have chunks and chunks of suttas that talk about experiencing the deathless, which is Nibbana, through the body. The Buddha so many times says, anyone who disregards the importance of directing the mind, the mindfulness to the body, doesn't know what they're talking about. In fact, they're not even practicing the Dhamma, he says. That is Adhamma, he calls it, non-Dhamma. I mean, we came with this, we're gonna go with this. I mean, we're gonna drop this, that's what I mean. That's it. This is the only companion we have, truly. And we have a front row seat to all the principles covered in the Dhamma, starting with the Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, right here through this window. Unfortunately though, it's not uh, pleasurable to stay with the body, especially if the feelings of discomfort are there being experienced or the present moment that the body is registering. We run away, try to hide from the tension in the heart, in the body, in the neck, in the head by going and seeking out new experiences outside in the world. So no, we cannot be mindful of the world when we're neglecting the body. It's the other way around. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you. I, um, it cleared up an important point. I'm sure it was an important point for me. So it made a big difference. And I'm so glad for your answer. Thank you. Uh, beautiful question. Other uh, comments, questions? Please go ahead and start speaking. Can't see. Somebody's mic is on, so I guess someone is trying to speak. How about this then, if you no one's speaking or commenting? How about, oh, uh, sorry, Russell, did you have something to say? No, but my question is uh, kind of superficial. Uh, since you are talking about a lot of senior uh, bhikkhu and you know some of them are their health is not good i was curious in uh in a buddhist time um what their view toward uh, medicine or health and medicine was and how did they did they utilize um whatever was present at the time to try to um help the body or rescue the body or did they 
just feel it's a kind of a natural organic process and just, you know, go with the flow. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a super, it's not exactly related to your, um, to your theme, but I was just curious because, you know, um, they have a hard life and uh, of course people do get older or get sick or, so I was just curious what the, what the attitude toward, um, say, you know, mm -hmm. medicine or saving the body or, or not, or yes. what that was about, you know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't necessarily call it a superficial or 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 or, or um, not as important of a question because it is very important. Uh, we are all going to age if we're lucky enough, I guess. Um, and um, I, I don't even know if it's a lucky thing. I, it's an old habitual thing that I was raised using a phraseology. Anyhow, coming back to your question. Um, Today, you have health experts trying to incorporate dieting um, uh, systems or methodologies um, that are directly derived from the lifestyle of a bhikkhu. Meaning, uh, there's, there's one I came across the other day, actually. It's called the monk's diet where you go and um, fasting, and this is in reference to fasting in obviously direct connection to the body. Uh, you know, when you're coming across a culture where since childhood I've been taught to eat, you know, there's a three, three phases of food during the day, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, so that is a paradigm that still many of us struggle to let go of but it's a completely unhealthy way of doing it, generally speaking. Again, disclaimer, I'm not a medical doctor uh, or a dietitian, although I've studied uh, you know, nutrition and all that ex extensively. But the Buddha saw the relevancy of food in not only the health of the body, but also the health of the mind. For example, on retreats, if you've ever been on one, a long extended retreat, anything like around eight, eight days or 10 days, um, if it is done right, there should not be food offered in, in the evening. Now, what many people do is they start loading up during breakfast and lunch. Well, that defeats the whole purpose of eating one meal a day now, doesn't it? I once was uh, with uh, a monastic and he was one who would claim that he's, 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 a, he's a one meal a day bhikkhu. And we were being offered food by um, supporters and the menu came. So he was given the option of, of ordering food and he ordered steak with the whole shebang. And then he went with his fingers like this. Make that two. Two plates of full-on steak, big, big T-bone steak. And I don't know how he placed it in his body, but he did nicely. Now, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is not what the Buddha had in mind when he, 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 you know, he's talking about one meal a day. 
It's a one meal a day. Use the common sense, folks. So these bhikkhus, however, especially because of the, the, connect, uh, the closeness of time, they're living at the time of the sasana when it's still so rich and full, and, and Lord Buddha is around at that time. you would have about a distance of about a kilometer from yourself to the village. And in fact, that's one of the criteria where, you know, unless the bhikkhu uh, decides to go off and, and really go on a longer fast and they're able to do it and their teachers are okay with this, they will go off and live on a mountain and, and just fast. So it's a very strong resolution. That is not the general um, instruction. Initially, there were more meals allowed. But the Buddha saw that many people were going to the, to the village to get more food instead of sitting down and meditating. We don't become bhikkhus or monastics to gain more food and access. The food is there just to sustain the four great elements in the body, to sustain the effort because you cannot be diligent in your sati without food. That's another reason why when we sit to eat we have to pause for at least a millisecond to observe whether there is the presence of attachment to the food, especially if, if it's something that we've always enjoyed eating, that type of food. Now, coming back to directly to the health part of the question, the one kilometer distance, the person has to walk early in the morning to the village, go on alms round, and then come back and sit somewhere either on the road, under a tree, or back to the monastery, if it's still uh, before noon. That's your exercise right there. Now, unfortunately, more and more uh, monastics are not able to do that for various reasons, especially with the COVID thing, where they would go to Pindapada or the, the alms round. But we still would have the instruction by the Buddha to do the walking meditation, which is not just like one hour a day or 15 minutes. They need to match up with each other, the sitting meditation with the walking meditation. So if you're a bhikkhu and sitting, let's say for about four hours a day, your walking meditation needs to be at least four hours, at least. So talk about exercise. We're going past beyond the 10,000 step a day thing, you know, with the step counters. Now, as far as medicine goes, one of the things that used to be prescribed, and I think it still is used in parts of India, as part of the requisites is the medicine that we have before requisites. So we need to have medicinal resources being offered to us. And in those days, because it's very meager, uh, the means of which the supporters would, would, would help the bhikkhu in medicine, um, it would be very like homeopathic, very naturalistic. So when I came across this back in the 90s, I was like disgusted of what it is. It's basically fermented cow urine. They would take the urine, they would dehydrate, dehydrate it actually under the sun, and they would boil it and things like that. And then it would turn eventually to a paste. So they would use this in pretty much everything uh, as an ointment, things like that. 
And there might be some bhikkhus who are still holding on to this old, old tradition in far off forests, maybe. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that was the only medicine. Of course, some supporters would jump in and say, Bhante, I'm going to take care of you. It's the medicinal requisites and the requirements as the fourth requisite. So, however, including like hospital beds, things like that, those would be very much included. Um, the, perhaps even the first hospital idea of, of having like in a community monastic setting where there would be like a, a place for, for the uh, um, wounded or the elderly to go to, you have that in Savatthi. So it was very much like avant-garde, the monastic system when it came to the health. And 2,600 years later, modern science, nutrition is up in arms, you know, and just like amazed at the health values of the Buddhist monk diet. That's, that says a lot. Unfortunately, that is changing because you do have today obese, not just overweight, obese bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. So. No, thank you. It's very uh, helpful. I'm glad. Any other thoughts, questions? Um, I have a question, a related question on health. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, oh, yes. Can you hear me? Okay, I, I have a related question on health, but in this case about mental health, um, I'm taking up some someone taking care of someone who is bipolar, but also suffer from agnosognosia. So in other words, he does, he does not recognize that he, he refused to acknowledge that he has any illness and refused medication. But I feel I learned a lot from taking classes um, regarding the illness. And the most important thing is that one has to separate the illness from the individual. And it's very amazing to see, to read about all the positive symptoms of people with mental illness, including behavior that are very obnoxious, such, such as um, feeling constantly tense or nervous, being irritable, critical, and abusive. So learning about the illness really allowed me to be very empathetic as opposed to being upset by the person who is ill, realizing that this is part of the illness. Mm. But at the same time, if you really care for that person, you also want to influence the behavior without lecturing. In other words, the last thing you should do is that, hey, you know, you're being mean, you're being, you know, how come you're not, not more like me? How come you just are so selfish? So uh, the last thing one should do is to tell them that they are wrong or, or that they are, you know, are behaving improperly. So I want to ask you, how would you cope with, um, so for me, it's no problem for me to, and I, I'm glad to learn about the illness and to be able to love the person anew, knowing that it is part of the illness. But at the same time, um, is it okay to try to influence them, not by lecturing, but by example, exactly. in other words, to, to let them be, but at the same time, I myself don't never worry, no matter what is happening, I can tell you that, okay, I just want to listen to you, I won't worry, but at the same time, continue to do things for other people so that he can see yeah. that, you know, 
Mm-hmm. He's not the center of the world that, you know, and, and to care about myself saying that, okay, you know, you can come back at three o'clock at night, but please don't wake me up because sleep is important to me. As opposed to saying that, hey, you must come back at a certain time just to kind of uh, be the example and, and protect myself. And whether you have um, any comments on how the Buddhist way would deal with sure. someone who has a, a mental illness with um, the Buddha actually, uh, to my, based on my research, um, I, this was startling, the wonderful one, actually, uh, discovery, um, to find that 2,600 years ago, he was the first one who actually used the phrase physical illness and mental illness. Mental. Okay. So, in connection to what you were asking, so long as a person has not attained arahanship, they have a mental illness. That means you, that means me, not just the person you're referring to. Because the person you're referring to might have an exaggerated, an intense, a very saturated version of the symptoms that you and I share. You might say that you don't worry, but so long as you're not an arahant, I'm not going to believe you. Plain and simple. And please don't try to convince yourself otherwise. Because what will happen is when you're going to point the finger at someone else as having a serious mental illness or coming up with diagnoses, well, the APA sits there pretty much, they get paid this and that to come up with new diagnoses every few years. And the thick, the thickness of the DSM gets wider and thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker because they keep adding new diagnoses. And what you have today is many people are self-diagnosing or even worse, diagnosing each other while completely omitting the very huge fact to consider that they themselves have many of these symptoms, although on perhaps on a milder scale. But it's there. So if you want to help someone else, first and foremost, you need to really work on your own mental illness, plain and simple. And don't let anyone else to convince you otherwise, especially your own upbringing or your own concepts of yourself, of oneself. Because, oh, it happens over there, not here. No, I got my stuff together. Uh, No, I've read enough books and this and that. Many people who call themselves professionals or experts, in fact, can can qualify for many of these diagnoses. (laughs) Many, many therapists don't go and see a therapist. What do you say to that? But their schedules are full of people that they're seeing and providing so-called therapy to. What does that say? That means the person is completely neglecting to work on themselves. Talk about working by example. Now, we can't just say this and walk, you know, just pass by it and just, everyone has to work on their own mental health. Yes, we get it. But as far as the Dhamma is concerned, so long as a person has not at the very least seen with the Dhamma eye, meaning established in the Dhamma, 
at the very least the sotapanna stage, a stream enterer, where their faith is intact. There's no way that they could go with any other teaching. It's impossible. It's impossible that someone could come and convince you otherwise. At the very least, to, to get to that level, already you've cut yourself a big, big um, chunk of samsara and, and, and suffering for you. And therefore, you allowed yourself to relinquish a big portion of mental illness that you've been dragging with you. Now, of course, you still have mental illness, just like in the case of Venerable Kemaka. He wasn't just complaining about his physical ailments. He was talking about the fact that he still had conceit, which is a very, very, very subtle, but very present, just like, I'm not sick. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sick. He is sick. He is the one who needs help. Guess who's talking? Conceit, plain and simple. It's nicely camouflaged, you know, with things like experience, age, knowledge, terminology, etc., or even a fake smile. We do that often. We try to fake ourselves out of it by pointing the, 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 the attention at someone else. Many of these helpers that you see in history or in, in, in different places who want to help, that's a wonderful thing, by the way, of course. But when you have them on candid camera and they're following, the camera follows them into their own world, you see, oh my, they're the first who needs help. But another way of addressing that, meaning by running away from it, is by helping someone else, which gives us the sense of self-satisfaction that, yeah, see, 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 I'm helping. See how good I am? See how great I am? See how I have my stuff together? Meanwhile, it's just a ruse. It's just a big fat lie. Because deep down, we're very, very much hurting. And that's another reason when people go off to retreats or to live by themselves, even for a little while. They don't know what to do, especially if they're away from such individuals where they were taken care of for so long. Suddenly there's this vacuum. What am I going to do? Oh, you're faced with your own hindrances, your own defilements, and there's not going to be running away from them because you're by yourself. You can't stick them on someone else. So um, it's an opportunity for growth for the individual. Even if you're in the room with uh, a narcissist, who also is someone who's like, you know, I have nothing wrong with me. It's the world that's got the problem mentality. And you have a lot of that today in society. Narcissism. It's not just in one or two people. And as far as the need for mental health, I think everyone needs mental health. Uh, addressing of mental health and uh, so long as they're not arahants. So we all need, I think, to cater, uh, you know, take care of that. So I hope that uh, is a, a sufficient response to you. Uh, I think we're good with time, right? Uh, unless there's an urgent question that needs to be asked. 
Okay. So let us dedicate some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear stuck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the achievement of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Please strive on diligently. No one will do the work for us. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about the person inhabiting this, this bag of bones that we call a body. That's always changing. It's unreliable. It's inconstant. It is impermanent. Using that as our library of knowledge that always is feeding us with new information to relinquish our thoughts and explanations of the world. Being able to walk away from all that as we anchor ourselves in the reality of the present living experience, irrespective of what's happening around us. And be like that elder bhikkhu, the abbot, who made his confines of his mindfulness his own body. I wish upon you that. And the highest Magga, Pala, and Nibbana. No one's going to give that to you, except for your own efforts. Be well. See you next week. It's okay, old.